Okay. Good morning again, everybody. Welcome to this uh, Feast of the Word. So let's pray for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, may you um, bless your word today. This is a very practical and important issue for our lives. So we pray that you let the truth shine and let uh, let the Spirit rule over the reason and over our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. First Corinthians, Sanctification Through the Beatitudes, Part 9, The Issue of Marriage and Divorce, Combining Holiness with Wisdom, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. We're dealing with sanctification between justification and glorification. Okay. Uh, this Justification and glorification are the last two steps of God's work. He did the five works, election, predestination, call, justification, and glorification, all by himself. Sanctification is a cooperative work between the last two steps. Okay? It is not mentioned in Romans 8, 29 to 30, because it is a combined work. It's not monogistic. It is uh, uh, synergistic. Okay? And it is covered, however, by the Beatitudes and by the First Corinthians. Okay? The, they are in correspondence. We found out the, the Beatitudes is very overarching theme. It covers the New Testament and even reaches to the Old Testament, to the time of Abraham. And uh, um, Paul's letters are in correspondence because naturally he writes to the church, and the church went, first generation church went through these eight steps of growth. So that was natural. However, in 1 Corinthians, he gave us the uh, a covering the eight problems which correspond to the to the eight missing, the lacking of the blessings of the Beatitudes. And they are in order. So I have to believe that Paul knew that they are in correspondence. It was a conscious decision. Okay, And uh, uh, in the roadmap of 1 Corinthians, the epistolary introduction told us that the church in Corinth is a genuine church. It is positionally sanctified. They're called saints by calling. They have a secure relationship with God. And uh, they already obtained the love of God. Those should not be doubted. However, the church is very immature. <laughs> and uh, uh, it needs practical sanctification. It needs to improve their fellowship with God. And they need to seek for God's pleasure with them. So those are things to work on. So the Church of Corinth, being problematic, it is genuine. Okay, That could apply to most of our churches today, being problematic. But if, by God's grace, we're genuine, we have something to work on. Okay, Which is exactly what this book is teaching us. And uh, the... Paul told about some problems of his, the, the, the church. The problem number one is pride. They quarrel with each other. So that is because they lack what? The first beatitude, poor in spirit. Okay? They, they didn't recognize their poor in spirit. They thought they were rich. Okay? The second problem, the tolerance of sin. That's because they lacked what? The second beatitude, mourning for sin. Okay? The third problem they, they are trigger-happy for lawsuits. Okay? Uh, what does that mean? That means they lacked the third blessing in the Beatitude. They lacked meekness. Okay? And the third is not really proposed as a problem. It's an issue. 
okay, to deal with. Okay? And then the issue is sexual purity. Okay? So there are three parts. We're going to use three sermons. Uh, today is the second. The first sermon is about sexual immorality. The uh, actual context is, can a Christian who used to go to brothels now continue doing the same way? Absolutely not. That's Paul's answer. Okay. And the second issue is about marriage and divorce. Okay. And then the third issue is about stability uh, uh, and singleness. Okay. So today we're dealing with marriage and divorce. Is that a practical issue? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Okay. So, <clears throat> okay. There are two options of interpreting this chapter. 1 Corinthians 7. It really depends on whether you put a quotation mark on one sentence. Okay? 7.1. I'm reading to you New American Standard. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Without a quotation mark. Okay? And uh, now I'm reading to you the English Standard Version. ESV. The new newly popular version, okay, and a good one, okay, and it says this way, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quotation mark, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman, end of quotation. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is whether or not What's in the quotation mark is a teaching of Paul, or it is the subject matter that the um, First Corinthians wrote about. Okay? If it's a teaching of Paul, then that means Paul's teaching in this chapter uh, starts as a springboard from this, set, set, this sentence, that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, celibacy is ideal. Sex is a bad thing. And uh, so marriage is a compromised second best. And singleness is recommended. That would be the position. The other way, if you wrote it as a quotation mark, so it is a subject matter that uh, the First Corinthians wrote about. They, ask, they are asking Paul, to give a decision on whether or not it is <clears throat> good for a man not to touch a woman. So somebody in the church proposed this, and they are asking Paul's opinion. Okay, Then this will not be the springboard of Paul's teaching. Okay? It's just a subject matter. And the Paul's teaching would be just <clears throat> in the context of maintaining sexual purity, marriage is a good way, and singleness is good too. Is another way. It's a good tool if you have the gift. So that's another thing for another day. So you see, in light of the Bible <clears throat> uh, giving us God created Adam and Eve as a man and a woman, and God married them. So sex is not a bad thing in the Bible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> It is illicit sex that is a bad thing. So in light of that, I would choose the second option without condemning sex per se, but just illicit sex. 
Okay, so that's why I would prefer to the second version. Although historically the church, especially the Catholic Church, has opted for the first. Okay. <clears throat> so verse two. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. So sexual immorality is having sexual relationship beyond the biblical boundary. That is marriage of one man and one woman. Anything beyond that is illicit. Okay. And uh, what is banned is illicit sex, not sex itself. Uh, sex with prostitutes is the immediate context, and Paul banned that. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality are biblically banned. Pedophilia is banned by implication through the virginity test, okay, and also the ban on homosexuality. Even though rabbinical Judaism justified them by saying that the law on you shall not commit adultery just banned having sex with another man's wife, but for boys under nine and girls under three. Sex is permitted. You see, that's where pedophilia started. Islam didn't. Rabbinical Judaism did. Okay, so that is twisting the law uh, to satisfy sinful nature. It is evil. Okay, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, clearly banned all of those as illicit sex. Okay, and. Uh, it's not just reading that one commandment alone. You have to put in context all of the case laws and their implications. Okay, and you get the spirit of the law then into the, the letter. Okay. So generally speaking, marriage provides the normal solution to prevent sexual immorality. It gives the legal way to sexual fulfillment. Okay. Now, what is marriage for? Is it just for procreation to create a legal heir? Or is it also for pleasure? Well, here Paul says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The body of believers uh, does not just belong to self. It belongs first to God and then to the spouse before belonging to self. So it is a duty for a married person to fulfill the sexual desires of the partner. The duty is greater than pleasure and greater than self-will. Or in other way, you can say that the duty will lead to the pleasure and lead to the self-will of the one. So the greater sign is both greater than and leading to. Okay. And uh, uh, the only exception is prayer time. If a person says, I'm going to devote a certain time of fasting and prayer, so I'm not having sex. And that is putting God over spouse, and that's a lot. Okay. And uh, even though marriage is good, it is not a must. Okay, Paul said in verse 4, 
But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul did not command all people to get married. He is single and celibate, uh, devoted to serving God as a missionary, which would be hard on family or costly with family. Think about it. If a missionary travels a lot, if he leaves his wife and children, that's hard on the family. If he travels with his family, that would be costly. Okay? So Peter married. He took his wife anywhere he goes. Okay? But apparently they had no children. Okay? Paul remained single, and he has a gift of celibacy. He's totally devoted to being single. And he says, I wish everybody's like me, so you can totally devote to God's work. Once you get married, you got to be concerned for more than God's things. You have to concern your wife's needs, your children's needs. Okay? When I had one child, a young child, I was a missionary, and I traveled anywhere with my wife and this first daughter. But uh, later, as I had more children and children started to go to school, I have settled down. I'm staying here as a pastor to wait until the children grow up and out of school. Then I may be able to travel. But now I'm local. Okay. <laughs> so you see that there's, you just have to concern more if you have family. Okay. Not just God's thing only. And that not all have the gift of celibacy or the call to missions. So he gave it as a norm, marriage as a norm due to the frequency. It is basically most people do it this way, okay? But as a concession to practicality, not as a command for all, nor as the ideal, okay? Singleness is not, uh, I would say, second-level uh, citizen than married people, okay? He's saying that's not. Okay, um, marriage is good. It's a normal way, because the most prevalent way to keep you from having, well, being compelled by passion to sin. Okay, but it is not a must. If you have a calling or a gift, then keep single. So that's what he's saying. Okay, stay unchanged if possible. In verse eight, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Well, interpretively, the Bible, this version of the Bible translated to burn with passion. I think it's more likely than burning hell. <laughs> I think that's what it meant. Okay, For the unmarried who did not experience sexual relationship, it is easier than others to remain unknowing by being single. Okay, that's why it's impossible. It's better, it's best to keep our children free from anything sexual. Okay, keep them innocent so that they have this option remaining to them that they can just, they don't know um, sex. They don't even though the body may have natural passion, but they don't know what is the passion for. So it is easier for them if there's no good partners and then it's easier for them to remain single. Okay? So they're not burning for passion because they know something. They don't know. 
and that's make this easier. But in today's context, when you have online pornography and so on, it makes it much harder. Once the innocence is broken, it cannot be restored. It just makes it much harder, not impossible, to be single. Okay. So for the widows, perhaps widowers imply too, to remain unmarried is the first option. It provides the best continuity. So think about it. If you remarry, your family structure, your inheritance, your relationship, your time spent, uh, and even your location will all have to be reshuffled. Okay. Sometimes it will cause a lot more stress than the comfort it provides. Okay. So Paul is recommending continuity. He said, if you could, now keep your continuity by remaining unmarried. If you are a widow or a widower, okay, if you can, okay, but if they have sexual desires that compel them to sexual immorality, then it is better to get married than being single. So in that case, if a person who really knows sex and enjoys sex and cannot live without sex, in that case, find a person that is okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. Find a person that's okay within a certain limit. For example, a believer marrying a believer doesn't have to be as beautiful as, um, well, movie stars or something, you know, just okay, okay? A homely woman, but a good one is enough, okay? So, <laughs> um, um, so a lot of people want to marry an ideal spouse, and uh, that ideal spouse idea is not from God, okay? Who is your ideal spouse? The one at a time when you need one and the one who is satisfied all the standards. That is your ideal spouse. The standards of being a believer and who is a faithful, good person. Okay. So what did I tell my daughters when they choose whether they should get married? I said, when you, if you want to get married, okay, first of all, I tell them, if you marry wrong, it's worse than not marry. Okay. So, don't marry the wrong person, okay? So, what is the right person? Is when you need one and this person satisfies these standards, okay? Number one, you are a Christian, they are a Christian, okay? So, you have the same worldview, okay? Uh, if you have different worldviews, you're going to have different um, plans for life, different value system. You can't be harmonious, okay? You're just getting into trouble. Okay? So, number one, they are believers. Number two, for I have girls, I say, he loves you. You, number three, you respect them. You admire them for certain qualities. Not the other way around. Not the one that you love, but the one that loves you. Why? Because if he's the one who loves you and you admire them and you get married, you will go, go ahead and, be, and change. You will love them. The woman is the one who responds. The man is the one who initiates. The man must love his wife. Okay? And he's willing to do anything possible to please her. If that is the starting point, the marriage has hope. Marriage has hope. Okay? If, it does, if the man does not love the wife, if he loves himself, a self-centered man cannot be a good husband. A man must be willing to give what he can 
to please his wife, make her happy. If that is the starting point of marriage, it generally will be fine. But the man must have some quality that woman admires. Okay, uh, and uh, that satisfied the first marriage standard when Adam regarded Eve as part of his body, which she literally was, and then the uh, the the woman regards her husband Adam as the Lord for who created her, which he partially was. <laughs> okay, so um, that was what I said. Yeah, that, that's the things. They are believers. He loves her and she admires him. Okay, and so if somebody, and I, I think, yeah, the fourth one is that, the other one is, generally speaking, a good person. Okay. You can't think you, you have the power of marrying a bad boy and convert it because he will love me. That is witchcraft. That's trying to control a person. It won't work. It's predestined to fail. Okay. So that's four standards, I'll tell you. Okay. If a person, when you need a, a spouse who appears and satisfy these standards. That is the ideal one. Okay? <laughs> Anything beyond that is have to be comparing to what? Uh, any looks or any wealth. Those are not standards from God. Okay? And uh, especially when a believer who says, now I found the ideal spouse God chose for me. Can I divorce this one and marry the other one? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a temptation. Okay. So, uh, for the, yeah, um, this is for the, um, uh, for the unmarried and the, for the widower, widows and widowers. Okay. And uh, he continues to teach that remain married by all might if you're married. But to those, to the married, I give the instructions. Not I, but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay. This is in the context of couples who are all believers. Marriage, marriage may have moments of conflict. Solve them through communication in love. The divorce should not be an option on the table. In general, because there are exceptions. Okay, so couples, when you argue, never put divorce in your in your words, because the heart is like a weak vessel. It's a, in China we have the thin porcelain, which you can even almost see through. They are very fragile. If you carve on it with a knife, one time it may not break, second time it may not break, three times it will break. So <laughs> don't damage it. The word divorce, once you say it, okay, it will carve on the heart. Okay? And uh, it won't be forgotten. And the other may learn to say it too one day. Okay? So just never put that in your vocabulary, okay, if you're married. Okay? And uh, um Excepting those exceptions. That's another topic. So separation could be a way to quiet down the anger and the purpose uh, is leading to um, resolution 
and uh, restoration. Yeah, sometimes when people get angry and <laughs> stay together is not good. Temporary separation is a good idea. I remember when I got married uh, at first, uh, well, we were separated when I came to America. Just six, four months after marriage. So my wife always said, you owe me. Okay. Because <laughs> the Bible says a husband needs to stay with a husband, with a wife for one year to make her happy. And she she got converted because of that word verse. Yeah, so God is really considerate. Yeah. So um, but we were separated for two years, and she came, and then we are like strangers. So we had arguments. Okay. And at a time when we don't have anything good to say, I said nothing. I left. I went out to drive randomly for you know a couple of hours. Then I come back and say, I'm sorry. What can I do? And then we reconcile. Okay. And sex is the glue, you know. So right. <clears throat> so uh, he continues to say that, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any uh, brother has a wife who is unbeliever and she consents to life to live with him he must not divorce her and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her she must not send her husband away so this is in the uh, for the marriages in which the partners have different religions okay. he says for the rest he already covered all cases the single the married and the widows and widowers so what's the rest well he's covering the mixed religion case now Okay, uh, and in this context uh, it, of this book, it's because the change of religion by the believer from paganism to Christianity. So one marriage partner changed religion. Now they are different. So should they still stay together? Okay, Paul is saying that believers should not divorce a non-believing spouse if the non-believing spouse is willing to live with the believer. Believers joined a spiritual kingdom. The reason I'm explaining that. The believers joined a spiritual kingdom. It does not imply a necessary change in temporal status in marriage or society. So if you came into uh, the universal church, if you're born again, became a Christian, when you are married, you remain married. Okay? And then if you came in as a slave, you remain a slave. Don't think that it necessarily means you should be a free man. Okay? But if your owner becomes a Christian, and he will feel bad for being a slave owner, and he may free all his slaves at his death or whatever, that is the act of God. But a slave should not immediately think by becoming a Christian, he's entitled to a social status change as a free man. Similarly, in the in marriages, married or single, you should not think that being a Christian entitles you to a change of something you think is bad. Remain the same, if possible, he said. And now in verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her uh, believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. But now they are holy. This is refuting the potential argument from a believer who tries to justify divorcing the unbelieving spouse. 
they propose that since they are now holy through faith in Christ Jesus, now they are saints and so on, but the spouse is not. They might be contaminated uh, by living with the religiously unclean spouse. It's a legitimate concern, okay? Ceremonially, they are clean and holy, and the other one is unclean. So by contamination, would they be become reduced, or will the other one be elevated? That's the question. So what does the Bible say? Paul says that, in on the contrary, the non-believing spouse as well as the children are made holy, elevated, by the immediate contact with the holy believer. The sanctification is not about salvation, but being accepted by God in temporal life. In other words, in ancient Israel, there are three religious cleanliness standards. standards. Unclean, clean, and holy. See, The Levites, the priests, they are born holy. The commoner in Israel, they can become holy when they become a Nazarite. During that time, they are holy. That's for commoners, it's temporal, uh, temporal. Okay? Common Israelites, they should stay clean. Even their times, they are unclean. So they may touch a dead, and they'll be unclean for a day or so, but they should clean. They should strive to stay clean. For non-believers or Gentiles, they are born unclean. That's how Israel divides people. Holy, clean, and unclean. So, a believer in Christ is now holy because we are now in the status of priests. Okay, All believers are priests of God because the veil broke, right? So we can enter. Now, uh, we enter the holy place. Uh, by the way, it's the first veil, not the second veil. The first veil makes commoners becoming priests. The second veil break will make priests become high priests. No, we have one high priest in heaven. That's Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> It's the first way, okay? And then we commoners can become priests uh, because of faith in Christ. So, um, the believers are now holy. The non-believing spouse was unclean. But because of his in touch with the Holy One, he's elevated. He's now clean. He's acceptable by God, can receive his blessings, etc. Okay? It doesn't mean he's necessarily saved. That has to by personal faith. Okay. Now, where did Paul get his authority for saying this? He said that this uh, is from me, not the Lord, right? And uh, um, he get it by his reading of the Bible, okay, the Old Testament. In uh, Haggai 2, 11 through 13, thus said the Lord of the hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the food of his garment and touches a bread with his uh, fold or cooked food, wine, or, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touched any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. What did he mean? It means that the law of God determines that holiness spreads to the immediate contact, just one level, but no more. However, uncleanness uh, will spread to infinitely more levels of contact. That is why sins must be quarantined. Okay? Sins are 
compared to leaven, right? If leaven got a little bit onto a bread, you have to quarantine that part. Otherwise, it spread to the whole part. That's why God told us to take to confess your sin quickly. That's why he gave us communion. It's better done weekly, so it propels us to confess before taking communion. Because there's a threat in the communion that if you don't confess and take communion, you might be harmed by God. Okay, He's too close, and you, you die. Okay, So, um, the uh, holiness spreads, but just one level, no further. Uncleanness spreads infinite levels as long as it comes. Okay? So, in this case, uh, when a believer, an unbeliever, are married, the believer is holy. What is the unbeliever? He was unclean, but he's now clean. Okay? Not as holy, but he's clean. He's accept acceptable. Okay? And uh, not the other way around. The unclean won't turn the holy into, uh, into unclean. Okay? It's God's grace. Um, so, that was the, the case. Okay? Um, believers don't leave the non-believing spouse. However, on the contrary, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay. If the non-believing spouse insists to leave the believer, then a divorce is granted. The believer is not under bondage. He or she is free to marry again. Okay. This is one of the three permitted divorces in the Bible. For number one, immorality, sexual immorality. Number two, abandonment by a non-believer. And number three, abuse. So let's explore these. Does God hate divorce? Well, he said so. Okay. In uh, Malachi 2, uh, he said that you, the Jews, will return from Babylon back to Judea. Uh, they, they start to divorce their wife. So the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Okay. And God later says, for I hate divorce. Okay. And why? Okay. The passage in Malachi is in the context of the Jews returning from Babylon, finding that they do not own the land, and try to divorce their wife of youth and marry the landowner's daughters. Their reason, these Jews' reason of divorce and remarriage is to further God's cause of returning the Jews to the land by human and immoral means, that the end justifies the means. So, are they right? Does the end justify the means? Is it okay to, to further God's cause by doing immoral things? Okay. Does God need our help to further his cause? He created seven days, uh, heaven and earth in seven days. Does he need our help? <laughs> no, right? So, I mean, Abraham tried several times to help God because God promised that I will give you a land, a nation, a, a blessing. The nation starts from a seed, right? So he always said, where's my seed? Okay, so he's tried a lot, didn't work. He tried Eliezer, his chief servant. Well, God says, no, it must be someone born from you. Then his wife suggested, how about born from you, but not me? Through a maid. Well, that didn't work either. So finally God says, no, I meant 
what I promised, I meant literally. Whatever the situation, when I said it, born from you, that means from your wife. Okay? And even though she's past the age of childbirth, God can do miracles. Okay? So God doesn't need our help to further his cause, especially not calling help from the devil by doing immoral things. Okay? So these Jews... Uh, reasons are wrong. That's why God says, I hate divorce. He rejected the argument by saying that he hates divorce, which is unfaithfulness. The opposite of God's returning Jews to the land because of faithfulness to his promise. It's opposite, 180 degrees to what God's intention is. So it's not necessary. That's why God said he hates divorce. Okay. And uh, what is the ideal of marriage? Matthew 19 said that. Okay. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The ideal of marriage is one man, one woman, one life together, oneness in body and soul. Okay, so um, it's both. It's all these three. That's the ideal. Okay. Um, does the Bible allow divorce? Some Christians will try and to be conservative and then countering to the culture, which is very permissive. Some Christians are proposing that no divorce is allowed in the Bible. Well, that's not true. The Bible does allow divorce because of the hardness of man's heart. Okay, uh, And in limited situations, in three, actually. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses determined to uh, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I said to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay? But the real life is not ideal, recognize that. Because of the hardness of hearts to reduce harm, God permitted divorces, but only explicitly in three situations. First situation, what is the divorce Moses allowed? In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her uh, out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. What do you mean? First of all, finding some decency in her is marriage unfaithfulness, the unrepentant adultery to the level of sexual immorality. It is not about cooking the wrong dish, as the Pharisees interpret it. Okay? 
Marriage should be maintained if possible, considering the vow and the children, etc. But if the so-called innocent partner, with quotation mark, because there's no completely innocent partner, it's always it takes two hands to make a sound, right? So, but the relatively speaking, less guilty one, okay, the innocent partner, the, not the one who committed adultery. If the innocent partner cannot take it and wants a divorce, it is granted. Okay? In some cases, for example, if a woman had premarital sex or had a one-night stand sexual relationship with another man, in certain cases, if the woman is repentant, the man can uh, keep the marriage going because he loves her. Okay, But in certain cases, certain men just cannot have sexual union with such a woman. In that case, then he is the relatively innocent partner. Divorce is granted if he requests. Okay. And uh, writing the certificate of divorce is to make sure that the reason for the divorce is legitimate. It is a public. So if it is for cooking the wrong dish, then it becomes a laughing matter in the community. Okay. And uh, uh, if another man knows that a woman is divorced without good reason, he could take her as wife. Okay? And if he could forgive if she was divorced for the right reason, but if he could ignore that and she promised not to do the same, he could do so. Uh, but the one who initiates the divorce cannot revert the decision. Okay? That will encourage flippancy. Okay. Uh, so that is the first case that Moses allowed is for what? Sexual immorality. In that case, the innocent partner has a right to request a divorce. Having a right doesn't mean it has to be used. Okay. <laughs> so if a right is not used, it's a ministry. And the ministry sometimes succeeds, then glory be to God. Sometimes it fails, well, then it is carrying the cross for God's glory by the one who's willing not to use the right. Okay? But on the other hand, if he wants to use the right, he's allowed. Okay. And uh, what is the divorce that Moses went through personally? Well, these are the Bible verses uh, in Exodus 2, 21 to 22. Moses was willing to uh, dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I gave him, uh, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, the second related verse is in Exodus 4, 24 to 26. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way to Egypt. Okay, supposedly Zipporah would go uh, with uh, Moses to Egypt initially. Okay, that the Lord made met him and sought to put him to death. Then Think about the Lord became a man in physically and trying to choke Moses. Okay, and then Zipporah saw that in that situation. Okay, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, "You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me." And uh, he said, uh, and he let him alone. God let Moses alone. And at that time, she said, you are a bridegroom or of blood uh, because of the circumcision. The third related verse is in 
uh, Exodus 18, 2 to 4. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after her had he had sent her away. Remember, sending a wife away is to divorce her. Okay. And her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help. That's what Eliezer means. God is my help. And delivered me from the sword of the Pharaoh. The fourth in related verse is in Numbers 12, 1 through 3. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Had the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Had he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was a very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That's in quotation marks because he didn't write that. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be a humble man. Anyway, what are these four verses saying? Number one, Moses married up the daughter of the high priest of the Midianites when he escaped from Egypt and was a laborer. His sons belonged to the Midianites, not Israel, thus they were not circumcised. When Moses was appointed the leader of Israel for the sake of consistency, God commanded that he circumcise his sons. His wife Zipporah opposed it until God was about to kill Moses for the inconsistency. Then she circumcised her firstborn only, but she threw. I used the wrong threw on the right but verb. Threw the foreskin and cursed Moses and his God. She was sent away, in other words, divorced, for an unbeliever abandoning a believer. The case which Paul permitted. Paul did not have authority to permit a new case for divorce. He used the life of Mo Moses as his background, okay, authority. When Israel came out of Egypt and became a strong, uh, the strongest nation at that time, Moses' father-in-law tried to reconcile the couple but was not successful. Moses re remarried a Cushite, possibly a former concubine. For Josephus recorded that when Moses was a, um, a prince of Egypt, he commanded an expedition to uh, Cush, uh, and then he defeated their king and took a lot of captives. Some of those became his slaves. That will include some may become concubines. But that was 40 years ago. If this, this woman came out of Egypt together with Israel and, uh, and now serving Moses as a maid, then Moses decided to restore her, you know, from a concubine to a wife, elevated her. That is possible, but she would be in her, I guess, 60s. He would be in his, what, hundreds? <laughs> well, uh, well, 80s at least. And so um, it's possible. Anyway, uh, she married, Moses married a black woman, okay? And his brother and sister. Uh, being somewhat racist, and they said, uh, why don't you marry a black woman? You don't have a Israelite to marry? And so, and then God said to, to um, what's his sister name? Miriam. You want to be white? I'll make you really white. So leprosy. <laughs> so, 
Okay. Color should not be the issue, right? <laughs> okay. So what was another divorce that Moses allowed? If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, this is in Exodus 21, 7 through 11, one of those uh, case laws in the covenant code of the Bible, okay, Mosaic law, one of the seven codes in the Mosaic law. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slave do. If she is pleasing, dis displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of the daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Remember, going out is divorcing. Okay. So what is it saying is this case. When a woman was sold as a maid, that is a female slave, usually that includes she may be uh, taken into the house. That means becoming a concubine, a wife of secondary position. Okay. And uh, if she was designated as either a wife for the master or the son, the contract must be fulfilled. If the woman was taken as a wife, but the husband wants another, the wife's treatment cannot be reduced in three categories. Number one, food. Number two, clothing. And number three, conjugal rights. Which means the certain nights that she sleeps with the master and husband. Okay? So that she might have children. So that she might have support in her old age. Okay? And this is her right. If any of these rights are violated, then she can uh, go for free. Okay, uh, th that means she's well, divorced and remarried. She does not have to pay any price to redeem her because she was sold, uh, but she uh, cannot be sold as a slave again because she is already elevated to a free man class through the marriage. Okay? And this is the permission of divorce due to abuse. Okay, in this case, the abuse is the reduction of the three treatment levels for a. Uh, wife. It could be a concubine or a wife. Okay? And uh, of course it can be extended in other cases, but it should be you should watch. Don't make it too easily, you know, as we have irreconcilable differences. <laughs> That's not one of the biblical reasons for divorce. So trust God and strive for unity is the last teaching of Paul. He said for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul went back to those who thought about divorcing their uh, unbelieving spouse, encouraging them to trust in God and strive for unity in marriage. We do not know who is God's elect until a person believes and is proven as an elect or dies as an unbeliever, okay? except those two cases, you don't know who is an elect. So we should never presume that the unbelieving partner is an unelect, is not an elect, and then give up witnessing. We should keep married and then faithful to be a good witness and leave the result to God. That's Paul's teaching. So, how's this sermon? Practical? Useful? Reasonable?
that are reasonable. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us、uh, this very important Bible text, teaching us a very important personal issue. None of us are perfect, and、uh, many of us have suffered through the imperfection of us or our marriage partners. But you are graceful, and you taught us to be graceful. And if you have given us the good situations, we should be grateful. And we pray that in all situations we should obey, strive to obey your words, and strive for perfection. And、uh, if you are weak, we pray for your forgiveness, and then let us restart in the new commitment, and then keep us faithful. And、uh, we pray that when we see you,、uh, you will call us faithful. In Jesus' name, we pray. Please stand. I'm going to say another short prayer, and then what I'd like for us to do, I'll come down and、uh, we'll sing the doxology. But I'd like for us to find a way to join hands together as we do that, and in doing so, we will praise God and then、uh, use that as a blessing for our meal. But join me in a short prayer、uh, at this time, dear Lord. We're so grateful for this teaching on sanctification, and may each of us strive to use this teaching to put it into、uh, works in our life, so that we might be more like you in our attitudes, our words, and our deeds. We thank you for your many blessings. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So now let's spread out as you can. Hold hands and let's sing the doxology. I'm reminded of one other thing. <clears throat> we have what we're calling the Feast of Thanks, and we want all of you, please, to stay and join us in、uh, eating the food and and fellowship. Doesn't matter whether you brought food or not. We have plenty, and so we want you to stay and be a part of of this、uh, in a moment. Thank you. Praise Father, Son.